Hello and welcome to the Doola UK podcast. My name is Leela Baker. Today with me I have Morgan. Can you introduce yourself please? Yes, so my name is Morgan Richardson and I am a doula, perinatal health educator, a doula trainer, and also the co-creator of Woven Bodies, which is an inclusive digital practice supporting queer folks and allies from family planning to parenthood. And I live in Kingston, New York in the US with my wife who is an acupuncturist and our daughter who is almost three years old. And thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Um, so in addition to being an experienced birth and postnatal doula, you offer antenatal classes or childbirth preparation classes. How do these differ from some of the courses offered by larger organizations? I love this question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> so I offer a variety of courses and classes for individuals and families to take. Um, and those classes range from um, trainings and classes on the process of even just beginning to track your cycle, either for conception or for, um, to, for in order to not conceive, um, and also classes on how to get pregnant. So I work, we work often with queer and trans and gender non-conforming families who are using artificial insemination. Um, so donor sperm or donor eggs, um, trying to get pregnant. Um, so we teach classes on, on that. Um, also, this, the, the common classes on what does it mean to be a person who is pregnant? Right? And what does it mean to be a person who is giving birth? And our classes are really inclusive um, and affirming. Um, and so that means that when you come and take a childbirth education class with us, you're learning about um, you know, your body as a queer person giving birth, your body as a black person or brown person giving birth in the US. Um, we talk about the politics of giving birth, not just the actual physiological process of giving birth. Um, we also teach classes on navigating the postpartum period with that similar lens, with an anti-racist lens, with a queer trans, um, gender non-conforming, affirming lens. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of our classes also extend beyond that space. And so we, we actually just did a class on the radical act of choosing schools for young children and toddlers. Um, so our woven bodies um, that I run with my wife and a few others um, is really a practice or rather really um, does a lot of classes on the, the broad spectrum of what I call uh, and what a lot of folks are calling a reproductive justice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not so, been so much of an issue for me um, with school, but when we've moved, we've moved to, we grew up, we brought our children up in London for the most part, um, which is relatively multicultural and um, we've moved to a new area and when I was choosing schools here, knowing that um, black people are in an extreme minority here, um, I, when I was looking at the websites, I chose one that had a black person on the website, um, just because that made me feel safer about sending my child to that school. Things like that, that a lot of people don't have to consider, that people, people take for granted. But for me, seeing somebody you know, who is also black on the website helped me to understand that that school would probably be a more, slightly more open-minded school just from that representation on the website. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, so we have since, I grew up in New York City and we have since moved to upstate New York, which is just a little bit more, it's a combination of uh, rural and suburban. Um, it's still, it's a small city basically is where we live. 
And we wanted to have more space for ourselves, for our child here. But one of the big concerns that we had when we were looking at these acres of beautiful farmland was, are there other black children here? And what are the schools like? Are they really gonna be affirming for our child who is mixed race? I'm black and my wife is white. Um, and you know, and it, it, we ended up choosing a, a larger city than we had intended upstate because of that very reason. You know? And there are so many schools that people want to send their kids to here. So a lot of programs like Waldorf um, and Montessori and you know, forest schools, which are wonderful, but they actually tend to be schools that are not that diverse. Um, and aren't really um, equitable in terms of who they give money to in order to, to provide scholarships and all of that. So we've actually really struggled with finding, I mean, it's also a pandemic, but we've really struggled in finding the right place for our child um, and ultimately have decided, you know, that public school here, um, we have universal pre-K, um, once things open up would, will actually be the right place for us because of that diversity. So I completely understand what you're saying. Yes. Um, do you feel like being at the front line of birth and new parenthood gives you a better insight when preparing other families for birth and beyond? Just, you know, sometimes the antenatal preparation or childbirth education is done by people who don't actually go to births or don't actually support new parents. It's a kind of book learning or their own experience rather than sort of that integrated experience. Do you think, do you think that helps? Mm. You know, yes and no. So I've always said that you don't need to be a parent. Um, you don't need to have birthed a, a baby in order to be an amazing birth worker. And I think that still very much holds true to me today and what I yeah, believe. Definitely, yeah. um, you know, and, and that said, you know, I, I will say that as a parent, I have a, a, a different awareness and appreciation for the journey into parenthood than I did before. And, you know, for one, for example, in my own practice, I really understand the importance of continuing continuous care going into that postpartum. Um, and so as a birth doula, I often focus so much on that actual birth and then that one or two uh, postpartum visit after the birth, right? Um, but I see that postpartum support really through a different lens. And I'm able to share in that journey from a really personal place now. Um, and so all of that really makes me a, a different doula from who I was before. And I think in many ways, I'm wiser in that way. Um, but, and we, we were talking about this before we started recording, I also have a lot less time, right? Because I'm yeah. raising a toddler yeah. <laughs> and now doing that in a pandemic. And it, it does take me longer to get back to people. Whereas before I was, you know, you texted me and I was responding the second that I saw the little dots come up on the phone. Um, and, and I also can't deny that I am biased now, right? Um, in my own experiences of postpartum and parenting in this body. Um, but, you know, then again, aren't we all influenced by the life <laughs> that we live and have lived? Um, yeah. Sorry, I think what I mean is, do you think that being a doula helps you to be a childbirth educator? Oh, yes. Um, yes, absolutely. So I think that being a doula 100% helps me being a, ch a childbirth educator. You know, I, um, it's really, it's been, since I've been up here, and I'll kind of give you a little context, but I haven't been going to a lot of births because of the pandemic, as many as I used to. I used to go to four or five births a month. Um, and what I have found is, you know, I don't know a lot of the policies that are as many of the policies that are happening now because I'm not in those um, the, in that doula space in the same way that I was before. Um, you know, I can't talk to people about 
the exact experience that they're going to have in that specific hospital in the way that I used to. Um, and so that has certainly impacted the way that I teach um, childbirth education. Um, that said, I also don't think that you need to be a doula in order to teach childbirth education, right? There, there's still, um, I think there's a baseline of, um, of what you can teach. And, and then you, there's also, so in terms, by that I mean, you know, you can teach about the anatomy and the physiology and the, and the process of, of birth, but more than that, you can teach about what it means to be a parent and becoming a parent in the society in which you live. So it goes beyond just the birthing process and witnessing birth. Yeah. Um, you don't just need that. Yeah. So you said you've worked less, um, been going to less births during the coronavirus pandemic. How, how, do you know how it's affected births in general in your area? Yes, I mean, so I think, you know, one of the big questions is how has, how hasn't COVID impacted births, right? How has the, the, uh, the pandemic impacted births? Um, so at the start of the pandemic in March, uh, what we saw in New York was actually that birthing people were not allowed to have partners if they had a partner or a family member come with them and they were not allowed to have doulas come with them. So that meant a really big shift for the profession and field of, of birth workers, of doulas, who are attending births. We actually started to attend births virtually, um, which was, a, you know, for a lot of folks, myself included, who's very internet savvy, computer savvy, but it was a really big learning curve, right, of learning how do I support somebody via Zoom, via phone, via text, um, when I can't touch them, and when also they don't have a partner there that I can help coach. Um, to support them. So that was a, a, a massive change um, in New York State. Um, uh, luckily, a group of birth workers uh, here in New York State came together and really said, you know, this is not okay. This is a human rights issue. This is a reproductive justice issue. Um, we need to make sure that people are allowed to birth with, with at least one other person in there and also doulas are essential um, and so they just like somebody needs an OB or a midwife people need a doula and so what happened was within a, a, a few months um, doulas were suddenly allowed to be back in that space and were considered essential and into the birthing space in person and partners or once additional support person was also allowed to be in that in that birthing space um, so that was a huge thing um, in terms of what we're seeing you know in the hospital spaces, um, what we are seeing is that people are, you know, they are laboring with masks on. Um, you know, they're taking very uncomfortable COVID tests um, when they are in active labor as they get, as they enter the hospital spaces. Um, you know, and then postpartum, people are entering parenthood into, in a space that is much more isolated, right? And so they don't have the com same community around them. Yeah. Um, and those are just some of the changes. Yeah, it's been it's been similar here, although um, we still haven't got to the point yet where doulas are allowed back in. Um, there are a, a small number of trusts that we know of who are letting doulas back in. But with I mean, I don't know what it's like, what the trend of the coronavirus um, outbreak has been like there. But here it's gone up and down and up and down. Um, and right now it's higher than well, not right now today, but at the moment it's kind of been higher than ever so there's been a lot of um 
changes, frequent changes to policies about partners, about when partners can go in, um, whether or not doulas can go in, um, and whether or not doulas can support home births as well. Wow. Yes, it's, 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 it's been frustrating. Um, you know, we've done all we can, but um, we're not on a regulated industry here. Um, and, and so it's very difficult for us to um, put any weight behind our requests. Right. You know, we just sort of have to rely on the good grace of the, the trust or the authority that we're dealing with. Right. Um, and that's, I yeah, go on. Oh, I was going to say that that's just in New York that we, that doulas are really allowed to be back in that space. Yeah. Where things, around the United States, it's not the same, the same case everywhere, right? There are some states where that is not possible still. Yeah. Um, has there, do you know if there's been an increase in home birth or birth without the presence of a medical professional? Yes. So especially in, in March, uh, we saw a massive increase in the requests for home birth. Um, so I was hearing from uh, all of our midwife friends, especially in the city, um, that they really had to start turning clients down in a way. And they also had to start vetting them more. And so really making sure that these were people who were not just wanting to give birth at home because they were afraid of the pandemic and COVID um, and hospitals, but also that they were prepared emotionally, physically, right, spiritually, all of that to be able to give birth at home. Um, and so we certainly saw, you know, a huge increase in home birth numbers. It's starting to even out a little bit more um, is what I'm finding and seeing as the pandemic, um, as I think as the vaccine is, is starting to roll out a little bit more, um, but also people have just gotten a little bit more comfortable. Um, but I, I also don't know, I know fewer people who have attempted unassisted births. Um, I know of some who, or rather who are hoping, who had hopes to have an unassisted uh, birth um, at home without a medical care provider. Um, but I know less about that. Yeah, thank you. So here is, is you know, there have been, um, home birth has been difficult to achieve um, because again, with the limited number of staff available, um, because it, for us in, in hospital, it's still the midwife who attends. Um, not gen, you know, it's, it's usually not a doctor, it's the midwife who is with you for, throughout labor, even if you're on a, um, an OB led unit, um, it's the midwife who's with you. So because the staff numbers have been restricted, um, it's been difficult for a lot of trusts to provide midwives for attending home births. So there have been a lot more um, unassisted births here um, than there might have been before, than there might have been this time last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the U.S., there's so much, um, we don't have to get into it so much here on this podcast, but there is still, there is a lot of stigma around unassisted births. Um, and so there are some really amazing um, activists. There's a, a, a former mentor, of a mentee of mine, Montse, um, who lives now, and she moved back to Mexico, but she does actually a lot of work around um, teaching safe, unassisted uh, births. But, it, you know, um, we'll get into the, I'm sure, the medical system in the United States. Um, but people don't know much about their bodies in the United States. Yeah. We're really yeah. not empowered to know a lot about, you know, the physiological process of pregnancy um, and of birth. So it, it is still a complicated conversation. Yeah. Um, so 
the maternity system is is quite different there what do you feel um there so in general not in coronavirus times necessarily but in general what do you feel are the main barriers to people achieving a calm physiological birth there oh i love this question and it also makes me so sad but um i recently i was just i'm, I'm working on a doula training right now um, and I actually just pulled up some statistics, recent statistics on the state of um, maternal health in the US. And recently the CDC found that um, in the United States, 700 women die from complications related to pregnancy or childbirth every year. And so that means that the US is in last place amongst all developed nations in terms of maternal mortality. Um, and so when you look at the barriers to um, what you said, you know, calm physiological birth, um, there are many, you know, and I'll list a few. And one of the big ones uh, is racism, <laughs> white supremacy, homophobia, right? And so all of these have led to really the stark differences in how people in America give birth, depending on the color of their skin. Um, they've led to differences in the type of care providers that people have access to, if they have access to care providers. Um, you know, where they live impacts the way that people give birth. Um, how bodies are policed, right, impacts um, the way that people can give birth and parent, access to education, um, access to, you know, loans to purchase land, to be able to own your home or even rent an apartment, right, all of those really impact the way that you give birth. Um, so those are some of them. Um, also our healthcare system. So in the United States, the cost to have decent affirming healthcare is out of this world. Right? So we pay as a family of three and, and we pay less um, than most, but we pay a thousand dollars a month, a thousand US dollars a month um, for our family of three to have baseline health insurance, right? Very, very basic health insurance with a, what we call here is a copay of um, 1,500, 1,500. So everything up until 1,500 US dollars, um, we have to pay out of pocket. And then beyond that, the insurance then kicks in for some things. So that $1,000 a month doesn't even cover you for the first $1,500? Correct. Wow. Correct. And, you know, like we're over here and I'm uh, telling you all now on the <laughs> podcast, but we're thinking about exploring, um, well, we will be having another child. We're, we're in the process of, of making, trying to make that happen. Um, and it doesn't cover things like fertility. You know, it doesn't cover things like, um, the process of trying to get pregnant for us using reproductive technology or even home birth. Um, and so the cost of home birth, which is out of pocket um, for many, if you don't have private insurance, is on average 7,000 US dollars, right, that oh, you're paying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a whole, it's what we call the medical industrial complex, and it's really a network of corporations um, that supply healthcare services and are trying to make a profit. And that makes the healthcare system incredibly complicated here, right? And those are the biggest, some of the biggest barriers. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, here we, it's, it's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned when you said what the main barriers that you, you, you mentioned racism um, and homophobia. And um, because here, in, in theory, we all have equal access to healthcare, um, free healthcare. What, what, you know, we pay for towards our healthcare through our taxes, but it's 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 universally free for people who are resident here. And 
And still, our disparities in outcomes for black and brown women and birthing people are not dissimilar to yours. Um, and so that, that, that racism, even though there's no issues with the money to access the healthcare, we still have the issues. It, you know, yeah. the, the difference in treatment or the difference in um, willingness to access treatment. And I, I think that, I mean, that is ultimately why I said the first thing is really racism. Um, and it is what we call and what we've been really leaning into, but is white supremacy, right? And so racism is, I mean, that is when we look at the United States, when we look at um, who really has access to um, to care is actually the fact, the fact is that black women who live even in affluent neighborhoods who receive prenatal care in their first trimester, who are you know, of average weight, who have advanced degrees, are still more likely to die or have their children die than white women in poor neighborhoods with no prenatal care who don't have a high school diploma, right? And so when we look at that, those facts, um, we really start to see that it is not just, you know, it's not only about the payment of, of healthcare services, but it is really about racism um, in our societies. Right? And I think a lot of people in the US especially think that the, the UK and, and all of Europe are in a much better place um, than we are when it comes to racism and homophobia. Um, and I certainly, I'm, I'm half French and I certainly grew up knowing that that was not the case. <laughs> um, and so unfortunately, it's not surprising to hear that the UK uh, is in a similar place, even with universal health care. Right? Um, yeah. And I, I, I even remember going into um, and I, pre-pandemic, would go visit my family twice a year in France. Um, all of my family is still there. But I remember going into a, a shop um, right before the pandemic, and the, the store owner was white, and she followed me around, yeah. you know? And then I picked something up, and she said, oh, no, no, you can't afford that. <laughs> you, you wouldn't be able to afford that. And it's just, I feel like in, the, in Europe, to me, my experience has been that it is just so much more pronounced and so much more overt, um, that racism. You know, I, I, in the US, it's a little bit more, it's undercover, it's in the systems, it's in the government. Um, but in the UK, it's, in Europe, it's just, it's so in your face, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's not surprising about the rates, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so we interviewed you for our magazine in um, autumn 2018 and you talked about some of the additional challenges faced by families who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, for those who haven't read that article, which is awesome, and you can still access that article on our website, um, could you give us some examples of those challenges? Absolutely. Um, so there are so many that sometimes I forget, <laughs> you know, and it's, um, but there are quite a few challenges that face the, you know, the LGBTQ or queer trans gender nonconforming communities. Um, one of the first hurdles and one of the big ones is just the access to information on how to even expand your family. Um, that's something that I've been talking a lot about recently with, with um, folks that I do conception consulting with, but as a lot of people come to me and say, I don't even know where to begin. All of the books that exist on pregnancy and fertility are mostly geared towards heterosexual families with the assumption that there is somebody with eggs and somebody with a uterus and some, you know, and then somebody with sperm and to be able to make this baby. So if I don't have those things, 
how do I begin, right? And so looking at things like, you know, there is really no uh, book that you can get with information on what it means to do an IUI, what we call an interuterine insemination or an ICI, intracervical insemination, or what really goes into IVF. Even heterosexual families you know, say, I, I have no idea, I don't really understand this. Um, so that's one, is access to information. The other is, uh, another thing is the cost limitations of expanding your family. And so the cost of conception using artificial insemination can vary. Um, on average, it's, it can be anywhere from you know, two thousand dollars on average, um, you know, to twenty thousand U.S. dollars uh, more. On um, you know, if you're doing things like uh, IVF in vitro fertilization, some of the other barriers here, um, and also in in Europe and different places in Europe. Um, but it is also the law not recognizing uh, these families that are created using artificial insemination, right? And so in the US, for example, um, my wife, who I intentionally created my family with, um, and who you know, was there when we chose, obviously, help, I shouldn't say obviously, but helped us choose the sperm for our child. And you know, you know, we talked about having a kid, we both were very much active parts of um, the pregnancy together I carried and she fed me and <laughs> rubbed my feet, right? Um, she is not, she was not considered a legal guardian of our child um, and had to go through a process of second parent adoption um, to be able to claim uh, parentage, right? The parenting rights over our child. So that was another thing, um, or that is another um, thing challenge. And the and the irony of that is, is that sometimes in um, in a situation where a child has been conceived, the both parents are not always as involved as both of you two were in that process. And yet automatically both parents get the rights. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. It's really what, you know, it's, it really is. And it, it's to see other families that are not, are not so intentionally planned have both and have both parents really um, have both access to those rights is really, you know, it's wild. Um, and every single time that we want to think about having a child, and, and I, I say every single time, I believe we will stop at two. <laughs> Um, but every single time, you know, uh, we, we can quote you so on that because because it's recorded. So, <laughs> <laughs> please quote me on that, and hopefully, I don't get to four and go, "Oh crap!" <laughs> um, so we'll see what happens. Call me back in uh, five years from now. <laughs> um, but you know, the the last big one that I wanted to share challenges. Um, really the lack of, of medical options and choices when it comes to finding uh, LGBTQ affirming care, which is, I think, very similar to, and is not separate from, right, if you are a Black person giving birth or a Brown person giving birth or um, an immigrant giving birth, right, finding medical options um, that are inclusive and affirming of who you are, um, of the language you speak, all of that, the religion that you have is, is difficult. Um, I think around the world. Yeah. yeah. So when you add in that intersectionality of race, do you think that some people might feel like the system is designed to exclude them or harm them? Absolutely. You know, and so 
Um, and I'll speak from the history of uh, reproductive health in America, which I know is different from reproductive health um, in different places in the world. Uh, although there are similar, there are certainly some parallels that can be drawn. Um, but if you look at the history of reproductive health in America, that's exactly what it was designed to do. It was designed to exclude and harm people like me. So people who are brown and black or people who are queer, trans people who are immigrants. Right. And so in the United States um, during slavery, right, black women were forced to procreate um, and then their children were sold off. Right. And so harm and exclusion was happening. Once slavery was abolished, black and brown women and immigrants um, who came here, um, who were able to come here, were sterilized. Right. And then in came Jim Crow laws, which Jim Crow laws are um, kind of separation right, of blacks and whites. So when you look at pictures of the US, it would be like separate drinking fountains, separate um, schools, right, segregation. Um, those laws, suddenly when those laws were enacted, you had black children that were so wanted to increase the economy during slavery were now separated from white bodies, right, and were now denied access to the best education and healthcare resources and the like. Um, and so that narrative extends into today, right, into the 21st century. Um, and if you look at like also so black black parents, but also queer parents and, and queer conception, there are also plenty of harmful acts, which we just spoke about. Um, and one thing that I think we often forget about is even the access to creating a family um, is one thing that that we often um, exclude from from the conversation of birth, right, is the access to creating a family, but also the access to parenting in a safe place um, as well. And so there are, you know, there are a lot of um, systems in place in the governments that really prevent people from accessing uh, healthcare resources, like I sh shared before, safe places to live so you can safely parent your child, um, money to be able to, you know, stay home. Um, here people are starting to talk about paying parents to stay home or especially mothers to stay home with their children um, so that they can take care of their children and recognizing that as work, all of that. Um, and we do that less, even less so for, for, have those conversations even less so for black and brown bodies. So absolutely, I think that the system is meant to exclude and to harm um, black bodies. As doulas, how can we be more, approachab more approachable or welcoming to those with the greatest need or who are in the most vulnerable situations? You know, I, I, I don't know if you, if folks know of an amazing activist named Loretta Ross. Um, Loretta Ross um, helped coin this term reproductive justice, which is the, the merger or combination of reproductive rights um, and social justice. Right? And so I think first and foremost, um, one, read her books, listen to her, take her trainings. She has, she has done some amazing work. But I really think the first place to start um, is to begin educating oneself about why those needs exist um, and why people are vulnerable in the communities around you. Right? And so I think nine, really nine times out of 10, um, a lot of the vulnerabilities or the racism really stems from the system of white supremacy that has kept families in those positions with less access to resources than the person next to them. Um, and so I think we also as birth workers especially need to move beyond this place of kind of white saviorism mm -hmm. or helping. <laughs> And you know, and I, I still will see pictures of actually there was an article in 
I don't know, it was some, it's like our version of People Magazine. I think it was Mirror UK. Is that, is that a? <laughs> the Mirror is a newspaper. Yep. Yep. It's, a, it's, a, it's what we call a tabloid newspaper. Yep. Exactly. Um, and I was doing research, like I said, for this training. And there was this article that came up of this white, white midwife who went out to, I think it was Uganda. Um, and look how amazing she's using very little resources and is still managing to to save, save these black women <laughs> from their birthing experiences. You know, this was this year, yeah. you know, I mean, or 2020 that was published. So we need to move away from this idea of white saviorism and helping black people and poor people and the vulnerable people and move into this place of action to change the systems that oppress people. So what does that mean? I think it's one, educate yourself on what is happening in your community. It's two, find out what local groups are, are doing, are already doing. Right? There are probably plenty of activists who are already doing the work and lift them up yeah. rather than creating new systems. So donate to them, listen to them, share their missions with your friends and family and social media followers. Um, but really what we've seen this year is like donate, 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 donate if you can. Donate your time, your resources to those who have already been doing that work, um, that community action work. I think a lot of times we see, especially new, new doulas, new birth workers come in and say, well, I'm going to create this new thing. Um, and it, it really kind of which is great, it's wonderful to have that idea, but bring that to an organization that is already doing that, that has foot on the ground, bring that to an organization that has primarily black and brown or queer and trans leaders in there um, and lift them up. You know? Yeah, thank you. Um, so just gonna go back to um, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so you're for placenta yeah. encapsulation. Has this continued through the pandemic? And if so, have you had to take any additional precautions? Yes. So I actually, at the start of the pandemic, I stopped encapsulating um, just because we, we didn't have knowledge about how this spread. Right. And so um, we had even we had brought my mother in law over right at the very beginning to to keep her safe and many other reasons. Um, but we were I have you know, I obviously we probably all know this, but we were Lysoling and Cloroxing and, and cleaning bleaching, you know, after we use the bathroom and, and handrails that we touched and um, all of those things. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I wasn't sure, you know, did, was COVID in blood? You know, could it stay for a long time on this surface? Um, so that was one of the reasons that I stopped. We also had a severe massive shortage of cleaning supplies, right? That we need in order to create sterile spaces before encapsulating and also in the cleanup. So gloves, uh, Clorox bleach, sponges, um, all of those are even hard to come by now. Um, so that, that really slowed down or stopped the encapsulation process. Now I have started to encapsulate again and I am very, very lucky and privileged to be able to now live in a house um, separate that with a, that has a separate small kitchen um, in my basement, which is a huge change from the small studio that we lived in in Brooklyn in the city. Um, but that is where I encapsulate. So now the placenta never enters our living space where we eat or where my child plays. Um, and you know, I, I do pick up placentas from people, but I, I ask that families actually leave the placentas outside now in a cooler uh, for contactless pickup and drop off. So if I'm picking it up from their house. Um, then I, it, it's left outside in a cooler and then I'll deliver the pills and everything back in a cooler in front of their house. 
Um, if it's from a hospital, I, I actually usually rec ask if somebody can either drop it off in, in a cooler in front of our house. Otherwise, I'll go and I'll, I'll take it from that person. Um, but it, you know, I've become the, the great thing with encapsulation is that it's always required very sterile procedures in order to to do it. And so that protocols, those protocols were already in place, um, and those precautions were already in place. Yeah. Do you know if breastfeeding rates or chest feeding rates have gone up or down during the coronavirus pandemic? So that is such a great question. And as you ask that, my, my brain, you know, my brain is kind of rummaging around. And honestly, I don't know the statistics on that, but here, here are my thoughts and you all are hearing them for the first time. <laughs> um, you know, I imagine that they're probably doing a combination of both. And so I see them going down in some families because there are fewer lactation consultants in the United States, especially in New York, who are actually supporting birthing people in person at the moment. Um, and at one point I know in, in March, um, especially March, April, May, um, babies were being separated from their parents at birth for fear that the parents could potentially transmit COVID to them. Um, obviously we, or I shouldn't say obviously, but we now know CDC and the World Health Organization have said, you know, actually it's better to keep the babies with their parents, even if there's a risk of COVID because of the, the huge impact that um, breastfeeding can have on baby, or does have rather on babies. The benefits um, outweigh the risks so in that case. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so we have seen, you know, more people saying, on the, so that's why I also think that the rates have potentially gone up because we do see that the benefits outweigh the risk, right? Um, and so I have even heard people and myself included who have said, you know, I, I was planning on stopping at one year, six months, two years. Um, but now that we know that the benefits outweigh the risk, if I were to get COVID or my child were to get COVID, at least I know that they're getting these amazing nutrients and antibody, potentially antibodies um, from, from my milk, right? And so I've also seen people who are already nursing or chest feeding their babies are continuing to. So I had always, for example, had the intention of stopping at the age of two, uh, two years uh, with my child and she is now almost three and we are continuing. Um, we do need a lactation consultant to stop this process. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, please just get off. <laughs> you see me running around the house covering my chest, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, however, <laughs> however, I, we did continue for a while into two because um, that was a huge part of it was until I get a vaccine, you know, this feels safer for me right now. This is the only thing that I know how to, what to do. That's the only medication that I know is really powerful, right? That comes from my body that I can give you. Um, so I would say that there's probably a combination and I bet you, if we begin to look at the numbers, I bet you there's a division in race and class. So I bet you that those who have more access to financial resources and also just um, knowledge of lactation consultants, all of that probably are increasing their nursing um, rates. And I bet you those who are black, brown, um, potentially have fewer access or less access to lactation consultants, counselors, um, probably I imagine it's going down. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Oh, I, it's a great 
Do you know what's going on in the UK? Um, so it, it's been quite similar. It's, there, been, there were times when, you know, it was a very short amount of time, but there were times when the babies were being separated. Um, but also because the, because the partners aren't able to stay with the birthing person on the postnatal ward, it's meant that it's been a lot harder for a lot of people to access hands-on breastfeeding support or hands-on practical and physical support um, in that, those early days. And so it's been then harder to get to grips with breastfeeding because, you know, if you're tired and, you know, you might have been through, your, your birth might have been physically um, traumatic. So not having somebody there to help you, um, I think has made a, a, a difference in a negative way to the number of people who are, who are then um, succeeding with breastfeeding. But at the same time, because there's been a lot less interference in the first few weeks, those who have been able to initiate breastfeeding, I believe that they will have continued for a bit longer because they haven't had, you know, loads of people visiting and all of those things that can disrupt your pattern and disrupt your baby and make your baby feel unsettled. It's kind of just been, wow, it's just me and the baby and maybe my partner. Um, so yeah, it, I think for those people, it might have been easier. Yeah, that sounds pretty similar. It'll be, you know, we know so little about the pandemic, about the impact of the pandemic on the pregnant body, the fertility, nursing, you know, all of that, the whole spectrum of perinatal health. Um, and it'll be, you know, in a few years, it'll be really interesting to look back and be able to have um, kind of these narratives mm -hmm. um, from people and their stories in a way that we can't really in this, you know, with technology and it all happening via Zoom and people being so isolated. Um, but also looking at the statistics, like what really happened during this time? Um, you know, I'm, unfortunately this is happening, but it'll be, it'll be certainly interesting to be able to look at all of that um, and see how we can do better moving forward. Yeah, yeah. What do you think we can do to best support families at the moment with all of the extra challenges they're facing? I am always asking myself this question every day. Every time I'm teaching a class, I'm thinking, what can I do more? How can I do this better, more efficiently for the families that I'm supporting? Um, how can I be that person for them when they you know, don't have their family with them? Um, but you know, my main goal has always been to support families and really learning about their options um, so that they can make informed decisions um, so that they can give informed consent. Right. And so that and continue that really continues to be at the heart of why I do this work and how I do this work um, is teaching about, you know, what is really informed consent and do you even know about what your options are. And so I think even more um, now than ever is the need to to not really sugarcoat the realities of the world that we live in, which I think we tend to do as birth workers is, you know, we're trying to, it's kind of this balance of creating a really safe space, but also being really honest about what's happening within our medical systems so that you don't have more, you know, black women dying and black babies dying in, in the hospital systems here. And so that you have LGBTQ folks who know how to advocate for affirming care. Right. And so my goal is not to fully, it's to create a safe container to be able to share what is happening um, in, in the maternal health system in the United States so that people can really ad advocate for themselves. And so part of that means, for example, when I'm teaching classes, I will say to people now, I don't think that that healthcare provider is right for you um, based on what you're saying. It sounds like they are not listening to the fact that you are experiencing pain, um, which we know, you know, um, there's this, this uh, un, 
perception that black people um, are stronger physically and can thus experience more pain and so then tend to get less help with pain management um, um, and it leads to many other stark you know um, numbers around maternal health and death um, but you know so I, I will say that to families now in a way that I didn't before um, but also a huge part of my work is to make sure that families have support around them um, as and so that that support is as safe as possible right now and if they don't have that, figuring out how can we make that available to them. Um, so I actually just taught a class this weekend. And whereas before I would just end a childbirth ed class, now every participant in that class has actually an additional one hour with me one on one to really draft a, a full postpartum plan mm -hmm. um, for their family. Right. And so we walk through what is your actual day, your full day look like? How can we figure out how you can get help with very limited resources right now in terms of physical bodies to help you. Um, and so giving a little bit more of myself and my time right now is, um, is a huge way that I've, you know, I've really been begun to um, support families um, or continue to support families during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and I think also the last, the last bit of that is, uh, you know, taking action. So separate from, from the work that I do with families, but is speaking up about changing the laws, right? I said that New York group of doulas wrote a letter uh, called representatives and made doulas uh, an essential, essential workers, right? And so it is saying, you know, I'm not gonna sit down, um, but I am gonna speak up um, and work to, to really take action and change the system so that we make sure that there is equitable care that is happening right now. Okay, so thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been really, really lovely to speak to you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so appreciative of all the hard work that you're doing. Um, and I'm, you know, I hope that we get a chance to talk again and hopefully I will not have three children the next time that we talk. <laughs> we'll see. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So I just want to say thank you again to Morgan Richardson for being on the podcast today. Um, and thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to get involved, please get in touch.